also say a toe to so. You know what? A toe to so. A fucking a toe to so. All right. All right, fellas. I have a question, a very important question for you. What is the classiest way to show support for a politician that you like? What's the classiest way you can do that without humiliating yourself publicly? Uh, Photoshop yourself into photos where you're shaking hands and being friends with them and put it on the timeline. We're like, uh, pleased to spend time with my my good friend, Joe Biden. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I would say... um I, I, I would say you should uh, you should you should always drop you should drop like big things coming and suggest that uh, they're going to make you like they're going to like give you some kind of position of authority and then write a long notes app note when you that eventually doesn't materialize and then call them uh, treacherous and suggest you're going to leave them in your wake. Okay, those are those are both pretty good, but um, but the correct answer is uh, posting feet. If you want to support, ah. if you want to support a politician. And, and you, you like the cut of their jib, you know, what you got to do is you got to go online and you have to post as many feet pics as possible. Um, and and I, when- I think you should you should do that for different parties that you like. You should have done that for like um, like the Libertarian Party. Uh, there should be a specific feet pic you can post to say that you like Jason Kenney. Mm-hmm, um, if mm-hmm. you're if you're really into like BC NDP in particular, like you should do something with a toe that yeah, everyone post- knows. Like this is this is a foot pick in support of old growth logging. Yeah, just woke, post those logging. big hippie hobbit toes. You know, like big hairy toes. Come on, let's go. This Maybe is, this is what the this is what the Athenians had in mind with direct democracy. It was uh, democracy of feet picks. That's right. So I'm I'm talking about this mainly because. Uh, the, the weirdest thing happened on, on Canadian Twitter uh, a couple of days ago. Basically, there was a National Post article by Sabrina Badeau criticizing Christia Freeland, a uh, mm-hmm. friend of the podcast, uh, for taking her shoes off during a meeting. And that prompted a wave of liberal wine moms posting pictures of their feet which ha- with uh, hashtags like feet out for Freeland or solidarity in action. <laughs> this is like uh this is like that nickelodeon guy dan schneider who got like all those kids to send photos of their feet when he was just like hey if you like the show uh just everyone use the hashtag you know with this and then uh, put jelly on your feet and take pictures of it (laughs) that's pretty much it i think there's some there's some yeah the lady who wrote that article is a sicko she was just trying to trap people into sending her feet pics yeah. That's exactly I mean, it. Like, and what? I, I think I think Americans would be like wise to this kind. Of, I don't think Americans would like let this happen to them, or American children might. But I don't think American adults would like let this happen to them. I think Canadians are much more feckless and easy to trick. Oh, and these people were warned too. Like when the first foot pick went up with the hashtag barefoot and awesome. Um, <laughs> Uh, (laughs) I mean, we've had the barefoot is legal movement here in America for a while, but I think because of that, people are educated to the fact that all feed people are sickos and that you should keep your your little piggies off anything related to social media. Yeah, keep that shit wrapped up. I mean, so people were people were basically responding on the timeline being very nice, you know, saying, hey, uh, maybe uh, don't post pictures of your bare feet on the internet. I'm just saying like, 
I can't tell you why, but just don't do it. And the response was basically like, you can't shut us down. Like, we are, we are strong. We support our strong girl boss prime minister, you know? It was just fucking amazing. <laughs> it's, it's basically like someone going to, I don't know, invest in purchasing the Brooklyn Bridge or, str- or place an investment with uh, Ponzi. Uh, you being like, no, you really have to not do this. You are, cu- you are doing something you do not fully understand. And being like, no, how dare you stand in the way of my future <laughs> success out of my way i'm off to post feet check out these piggies baby <laughs> Yo, ooh, triggered are you triggered yeah. you you conserve conservatives who hate a girl boss one of the solidarity yeah. yeah one of the biggest boosters too of this of this short-lived movement uh had a clothing line or has a clothing line rather called madam premier <laughs> And I, uh, <laughs> I kind of, I kind of went through like their available stock, and one of the one of one of the most cursed things they have is uh, Hillary Clinton socks, where where Hillary looks uh-huh. kind of like uh, kind of like a cross between the existing Hillary Clinton we know and love and like a mutant frog. But then, but then they're on socks, so you put them on their feet, and the face kind of distorts even more. It's just cursed, absolutely it's all cursed. Stretched shit. out, yeah. yeah. I mean, that that's what they do before they actually wheel her out uh, to give a speech is they have to be like, oh, shit, uh, we got to get we got to get the scout, the scaffolding and the, the kid juice in there or else she's going to look like the melted frog. That's right. Uh, but I, I find it depressing that um, our um, strange uh, Renfield like uh, uh, sort of you know, liberals who become dedicated to like a, one of these senior political figures, we couldn't even commit to making an awful, uh, you know, mutant sock out of our own uh, girl boss, we needed to import an American one. Yeah, that's they pretty weren't confident telling. enough in our Canadianness. Yeah, come on, come on, Madam Premier, we have enough, um, you know, like awful girl bosses in Canada. You don't need to make socks of Hillary. That's true, but okay, you know, talking about Hillary and and talking about uh, uh, big beautiful feet. Isn't isn't the reason uh, we have our we have our guest on today? Uh, of course, it's live from New York. Uh, Will Meneker, host of Chapo Trap House and Film Lover. Hello, Will. Cheers, everybody. Always always a joy to, to be hanging out to, uh, with my friends north of the border. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and what do you know? You get you guys uh, you guys up there like movies too. Yeah, we we, yeah, we, got we a even few of your own. We even make you, some you may of them. even have seen some some fantastic Canadian films, uh, such as the Incredible Hulk, Hulk, the Incredible Hulk, the Incredible Hulk, starring uh, Edward Norton, uh, a, a, a wonderful gem of Canadian cinema. Uh, you may have seen also, um, I believe, some of the establishing shots of Home Alone uh, were also a, a gem of Canadian cinema, and the uh, list goes on. Yeah, location footage for the X Files, stuff like that. Um, yeah, so most American Will, TV we, shows. Rumble, Rumble in the Bronx, one of the most credible New York films ever <laughs> made, was you know. I mean, it wasn't all. I just, it wasn't all filmed in the Bronx. You know, there was there was a little bit of it that was in Vancouver, but you know they they accurately rendered the the culture and spirit of New York City and the Bronx so well that I'm going to let it pass. Mm-hmm. So today we're going to talk about. Um, an incredible time in Canadian film. Uh, it was a time when uh, Canada kind of single-handedly invented the uh, North American slasher genre. Uh, we saw the rise of uh, the king, David Cronenberg, and um, dentists, businessmen, and doctors were funding uh, everything from 
you know, uh, death wish knockoffs to uh, stuff like Porky's. And, and what we're going to talk about is the, uh, the history of Canadian tax shelter film. So, <laughs> so, you know, the, the beginning of, uh, the beginning of, of film in Canada, it really starts with the National Film Board being created in uh, 1939. And, and this was partially to produce propaganda in support of the Second World War um, and partially to create a domestic film industry. By 1950, uh, the National Film Act gives the National Film Board the mandate to uh, interpret Canada to Canadians and other nations. That's their mandate. So, I'm, I mean, that's sort of... When you think about kind of what ended up happening, spoiler alert, with the what what became of the Canadian film industry, it's a little bit sort of you know I don't know slightly depressing, but also a little bit um, accurate, given that we essentially became a, a backlot, sort of like a, a commodity a commodity provider for for American cultural production. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like let's what yeah. we ended up doing. I mean, at least certainly in the uh, the film that uh, I watched for today. I mean, it's just like we're going to interpret Canada for Canadians by making movies about America or just movies for Americans that are set in vaguely North American settings that they could easily mistake for being just a city that they're not familiar with. Yeah, like yeah. the most Canadian thing I think that exists in the film Scanners is that if you notice um, the defense contractor, Consec is always talking about how they have a variety of clients throughout North America, yes. and only Canadians say North America. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely other true. Other than that, it's, it might as well... Be, other than that, and like the fact that, you know, it's... You know, we'll get to this, you know, all obviously sort of shot in Montreal, it almost like might as well be an American movie. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. as we sort of go on, you know, that's just... That is... It, it be, we had this uh, yeah uh, I'll, I'll get to my big sum up. we Dan and I have been talking about this a lot I want to <laughs> yeah. save my big sum up points well there, I, um, I, I just yeah, get, it, is, it is interesting that our f oh, go ahead go ahead uh, I gotta add too there's another big tell uh, in scanners which is um, in the opening scene um, there there you there's very clearly an ad for uh, what Americans would identify as a corn dog but uh, it says Pogo which is uh, the Quebecois nomenclature for uh for corn dog uh another big tell that um uh that uh, uh that scanners is a canadian movie is um letting stephen lack be the leading man in a movie yes <laughs> just letting a guy that boring sort of like anchor a big movie like scanners is yeah that's a good that's a good canadian little little little, little bit of canadian culture there Oh uh, yeah, so I I was gonna say I'm gonna I'm gonna bring us up to scanners um, with just a quick history of uh, you know like how we got there, how we got to this incredible performance by Michael Ironsides, and you know like in the late 1950s, the National Film Board actually does some really good work. They they produce uh, really good cinema verte uh, documentaries. They have a series called Candid Eye, which is totally worth checking out. And they also fund uh, Larry Kent, who um, makes these amazing counterculture films like Bitter Ash and a, and a film called High from 1967. Um, so they have all this as, as like cultural product, but then there's this obvious deficit of uh, what you would call popular cinema, you know, stuff that you could go see at your local theater. And that problem mm -hmm. is solved 
by a company called Cinepix, which would later go on to become uh, Lionsgate. Um, they released, I think, Buffalo 66, stuff like that. Um, but in the beginning, Cinepix was just a collection of theaters owned by John Dunning's father um, in Montreal. John Dunning's father passes away. He inherits this uh, chain of theaters, and he brings on a man named Andre Link as a business advisor, whose first order of business is uh, to realize that they, quote, can't really do any worse than the films that we have been importing from Europe. <laughs> so they <laughs> so, so they were they were importing like uh, extremely low budget softcore sleaze from. Um, what I feel like they were doing is they were importing the films that they watch in Seinfeld. Yes. <laughs> they were they were importing Rochelle Rochelle. Rochelle Rochelle, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's exactly it, Riley. Like, yeah, so they were importing like yeah. like whatever, the Yugoslavian version of Rochelle Rochelle. <laughs> like the you know we, we get we've <laughs> We've got oh, what uh, W Mysteries of the Organism wasn't packing them in in theaters all over Montreal. <laughs> They're importing uh, Jochich Jochich and uh, yeah, so they decide fuck this, we're gonna make our own movie, uh, and they make a movie called Valerie, which is a breezy softcore movie about a sex worker, um, very low budget. But the brilliant thing that they do is they come up with a marketing scheme for it that is. Uh, Targeted. Yeah, an extended universe like Avengers. Yes, yes. And their their marketing scheme is to tune in with the with the political landscape in Quebec at the time. And uh, Valerie, the main character, is presented as the province of Quebec. Valerie is selling herself, selling her body, just like Quebec is selling itself to the Maudit Anglais, the the damned English. Um, and it works. It uh, the film is a smash success. Uh, Dunning and Link go on to fund a movie called Death Weekend. They fund Shivers and, you know, 70 other films, 70 or 80 other films. Uh, but the but the way that they do this is they use this tax shelter, uh, tax shelter scheme. And the tax oh, shelter... Can I, oh, Dan, yeah, before yeah. you go on, can go I tell ahead. you about something about Death Weekend? Yeah, please. Did you know that Death Weekend was illegal in the UK? Oh, is it part of the whole like video? Oh, is it was it one of the video nasties? Yeah. It was one of the video nasties. That's right. Yeah. It was it, it was fully illegal to watch uh, to to enjoy um, uh, some of Canada's finest cultural production in the UK for much of the middle of the twentieth century. I think I think like My Bloody Valentine, which we'll talk about a little later, like briefly, uh, also was on that list. I think a lot of these Canadian films ended up uh, on on the video nasty list. Yeah, because uh, the UK is a country that hates fun. That's right. You, yeah, why? Way to, way, to, way to support the Commonwealth, United Kingdom. To be fair, that's around when they were starting to flirt with their uh, satanic project of European integration. So uh, I expect fully that we'll, we'll finally get uh, Death Weekend uh, back over here uh, on British shores soon. And it will, be the, uh, uh, it will still ha contain the best looking people in this entire place. Like, I would argue that the films that the UK were producing at the same time were just as disturbing as Death Weekend. Like, has, uh, I don't know if anyone's seen yeah, like, Ab uh, Abigail's Party or like Nuts and Ma any of the early Mike Lee shit. That, those are horror movies. Like, and Nil, Nil uh, uh, no, yeah, the uh, Meantime um, and Threads. That makes a, a cheery double feature. Yeah, totally. <laughs> or what is it, Scrubs? Wasn't there, wasn't there a. 
Isn't there a, a film called Scrubs about like a, a like a boys' prison as well? I mean, come on. Yeah. Uh, that's just actually what happens in every school here. That's a documentary, yeah. man. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the tax shelter, we can thank uh, tax lawyer Don Johnson for this golden age of Canadian film. He was he was working out of Montreal in the in the uh, 1960s, and he made a discovery that would basically change the course of the film industry here. Um, he was putting together the financing for a Paul Allman film called Act of the Heart, which I looked up and it's a <laughs> <laughs> another Seinfeld-esque film name. But it's, uh, it's a clergy-themed pot boiler set in Quebec starring a young and handsome Donald Sutherland. Uh, and it is, I, w- I watched a couple minutes of it and it, man, is it bad. <laughs> But um, Johnson realized that Canada's tax rules included these little used provisions that allowed investors to claim a 60% capital cost allowance uh, deduction for filming, for funding qualifying film productions. So what this means is for for every dollar. So wait, Dan. Yeah. Are you saying that we had a producer's law? We we had a the producer's law. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. Exactly. Yes. This is this is the producer's clause. So for every uh-huh. every dollar an investor puts into a qualifying film, they could reduce their taxable income by sixty cents, um, lowering their overall tax bill. So it would take a few years for people to catch on to this and for people to start uh, widely exploiting it. But in 1974, the CCA got bumped up to 100 percent. So that meant you could write off the entire cost of a film. Um, and at huh. the and at the same time, this is going on. Uh, the Canadian government creates the Canadian Film Development Corporation, which is a crown company that provides funds to local filmmakers to help them get their movies off the ground. So you've got what Scanners producer Pierre David calls the money tree. So it's it's a mix of private and public funds waiting to be plucked. And on one side, you're submitting arts grant applications. And on the other side, and this is from David as well, you're, quote, pitching a room full of dentists, businessmen, and lawyers who want to save on their taxes. <laughs> uh, I mean, this does sound like actually like the perfect model for cultural production, because I think, honestly, like this funding exploitation film should be one of the only ways that you can shelter your assets from taxes. Yeah, I totally agree. Because well, it's a genuine social good. Yeah. Um, but also, right, like if you're if you think about sort of, you know, OK, well, there was this sort of gigantic sort of pool of public money and these sort of public incentives to dump sort of anyone who was earning over like, I don't know, $30,000 a year or whatever <laughs> to just like dump a bunch of money into the production of but, whatever. Yeah, but that de- that democratizes the role of being a movie producer, you know? Like it shouldn't just be for fucking like the ultra wealthy and Hollywood sickos. It should be some, yeah, some dentists from Quebec or Ontario or whatever. Everyone deserves to be Don Simpson for 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, it's like you won't have access to Don Simpson's level of cocaine, but you'll get you'll get some pretty good blow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like you're, you're look, look, but you're still not trafficking. You're not still like trafficking in weight, but you can still get uh, ounces maybe. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But also like that this I mean the fact is also like you know we if if the the more kind of the incentive here is to spend money on cultural production just because of some like crazy tax rule. But the incentive is still to like, you know, just get get the money out. We don't really care about what happens when it gets made, which bizarrely gives directors so much more freedom. Oh, yeah. It doesn't matter if it's like if it makes money. 
Yeah, and the types of movies that get made. So, you know, I've, I've picked a couple uh, very successful uh, examples of this of this system. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the first one I, I thought of immediately was was Black Christmas, which uh, is a 1974, like, proto-slasher film starring Olivia Hussey, Margot Kidder, and John Saxon. And it's about a group of sorority sisters stalked and murdered by an obscene phone caller on Christmas. Uh Clark would go on to make a Christmas story, which is kind of the polar opposite of Black Christmas. Same subject matter, but for kids. It's actually not. It's actually a very dark movie. <laughs> it actually is. Yeah, that's true. Um, he made. He also made Porky's, uh, Baby Geniuses, and something recently with John Voight in it called Karate Dog, which I have not seen. <laughs> See, that's what karate. That's what happens. We lost. We we lost like the these sort of um, unusual tax incentives to make just like whatever dog. And now, now all all of our most sort of genius producers of insane of insane movies are just making yeah, like something that gets sold in like a Dollar General, starring John Voight. That's pretty much exactly. John Voight plays the uh, the. the- John Voight plays the uh, the sort of the the neighborhood liberal uh, you know sort of a uh, block association president who wants to euthanize the karate dog for chopping too many children. <laughs> we got to yeah. do something and, about and this karate, karate dog. <laughs> he chose the movie because it's personal to him. He read a Dinesh D'Souza book about karate dogs, and he felt he felt compelled to be in a movie about them. Guys, uh, I got, also, I got I, a I like pandemic karate dog, and uh, it beat me in the kumite, and I had it put down, and I'm very sad about it. <laughs> <laughs> also, it stars Chevy Chase as the voice of the karate dog. I expect that those lines are delivered with uh, passion in a studio, and not just like in a cell phone with, from a cell phone with traffic noises in the background <laughs> oh, so so yeah i mean black christmas uh seminal slasher movie and made a shitload of money because it was uh you know it was put together on a pretty low budget and, and on the same tip you get um george mihalka's my bloody valentine and you know mihalka is like an interesting case in this in this tax shelter milieu too because he came out of the political and experimental film scene like his what he was working on before this slasher movie that he made was he he was living with unhoused people in Montreal for three months, basically documenting their lives. He's uh, and and during the tax shelter era, so he was approached and he was basically like, "Oh, I can make a movie. It has to be a genre pick, but I can make like a political movie about the abandonment of the uh, working class in uh, Nova Scotia." It's just going to have to be a slasher film. And that's exactly what he did. So he made My Bloody Valentine. Um, You also have Prom Night, another like seminal horror film. Oliver Stone makes his first movie under the tax shelter system, a movie called Seizure. And and then, you know, one of the biggest successes, of course, is is Ivan Reitman, who produces uh, Meatballs, Porky's, Shivers, goes on to make Ghostbusters. And uh, also produces one of the two films that uh, we all decided to watch for this episode. So, <laughs> well, and Will, I want to say, Will, this was I gave you, I gave you uh, what, like four or five films. This was your choice. Blackout, nineteen seventy-eight. Yeah. Um, can you can you walk us through uh, the basic outline of this uh, this product of the tax shelter okay. film era? 
Well, I got to say, uh, first and foremost, as the official New Yorker on the show today, I would like to say that Blackout is a surprisingly very credible New York City film. Uh, a good chunk of it is actually filmed in New York City, and I think it uh, definitely does capture the uh, the New York of the 70s. Obviously, I wasn't alive to it, but the fact that every civil servant portrayed in this film has horseshoe padding baldness, is sweating profusely, and is chewing on an unlit cigar in every scene with them, I thought was very credible. It, was, it reminded me a lot of uh, Taking of Pelham 123. Um, it's a strange movie. It's sort of a, it's a combination of sort of like black comedic social satire and then like a sort of disaster thriller and then a very sleazy grindhouse like exploitation, like torture, rape, revenge film. Mm. There's a lot of stuff going on in it. Uh, it stars uh, Robert Mitchum's fail son, Jim Mitchum, <laughs> in one of the most leaden performances I think I've ever seen. But low energy. Uh, his, his utter affect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His absolutely low energy, affectless, just sort of like uh, wandering in and out of scenes, just sort of like confused, not really knowing what's going on. That is offset by a very lively, villainous performance by the great Robert Carradine. And I think the film he did uh, right before he became famous in Revenge of the Nerds. That's right. He is indeed playing a nerd in this movie, but he's playing sort of a he's playing a scary nerd mm. he's playing a nerd with swag in this movie which i appreciated of the uh, the great the great Carradine family well he's playing a nerd with swag who like uh who loves to uh critique uh capitalism and terrorize the rich that's right yeah yeah, yeah no he is a, he's a, he's a le- he is a explicitly a left-wing domestic terrorist who has been waging a bombing campaign against corporate america but also believes that the sick and weak have no business living in society so <laughs> His 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 political beliefs are a little confused. Um, it's you know it was released in 1978. That's two years after the famous "The Bronx is Burning" incident and the big blackout that led New York to descend into near anarchy and looting and things of that nature. So the movie is very much a kind of urban exploitation film. But I got to say, it really did. Um, it reminded me a lot of Cronenberg's uh, first movie, Shivers, because most of it takes place in a fairly upscale apartment building. And what I thought was interesting about this movie from a Canadian perspective is unlike American like urban anarchy movies of a similar era, which tend to focus on like the dregs of society and take place in like, you know, squalid, bombed out neighborhoods in the Bronx or just like, you know, the urban poor. uh, This movie is very much about like the... uh, uh, similar to Shivers is about like the introdu- introduction of sort of foreign agents that precipitate a total breakdown in like the social order and within just this sort of a uh, hermetically sealed universe of a fairly upscale Upper East Side apartment building. And um, to like to that end, I, I was I was a little I was because, you know, like when I was going into the movie as I, I was expecting a much more of like a like a death wish sort of movie yeah. where it's just very much about like, you know, poverty and, and, you know, like, like the scary urban criminals and just like the, the streets of just like muggings and, you know, just, just disastrous nightmare urban anarchy. But like this movie introduces that concept to a very kind of like, like polished middle-class to upper middle-class milieu that I enjoyed. It's basically about, so like uh, basically a blackout happens in New York city, a blackout happens as 
sort of similar to like a sort of a mini con air. Mm-hmm. You've got four or five um, uh, sort of uniquely uh, sadistic and evil criminals being transported via paddy wagon to Rikers Island or, or criminal processing or something like that. They're being transferred and then like they're they're able to escape mm-hmm. in the middle of a blackout and they make their way to this uh, apartment building and proceed to uh, terrorize the residents of this uh, this building for a night of uh, horror. But the one thing they are not planning on is police officer Jim Mitchum, Mitchum, Mitchum. Yeah, the, the, ma- the man who uh, just by just by their bad luck happened to have uh, a bout of somnambulism and sleepwalked into the crime scene. Exactly- where he began desult- <laughs> yeah. desultorily punching them occasionally. He accidentally uh, stops them from doing crimes like several times in this movie, like through no yeah. bl- like deductive work of his own, just like blunders into an apartment where they're terrorizing someone that's it's <laughs> incredible and then and then the moment i mean I, I i mean and all, what i also enjoy like the moment that he um that like one of the criminals sort of gets access to him he immediately is tied up on a couch <laughs> yep <laughs> yep like so yeah it's like you got this uh like like i said like this con R, con air style all-star team of uh criminals including the previously mentioned robert carradine who's sort of the brains of the operation is the uh, left-wing terrorist who's like you know when they're when they're fucking with each other in the back of the paddy wagon he's just like why don't you why don't you direct your anger and violence towards the real enemy they're sitting up there i'm talking about the cops folks yeah, yeah don't punch they, he's they telling them not to punch in our, down. Our evil capitalist society he's like, yeah it's like you're he's, punching he's, down in some ways in some ways he was the first bernie bro yeah and then he's like hey well here's here's this nice apartment building Let, let's just rob all these people and take their money in a, in a nice car so we can you know make a quick getaway during this blackout uh then you've got sort of the muscle uh, muscle of the gang who's sort of the least sketched out character but he's just he, he's able to punch down locked doors mm-hmm. uh, then there's an, a, a firebug arsonist character who's sort of the wild card Kopech. and by wild card I mean he's clearly he's clearly French Canadian as well, yeah. something like well, that he's, he's, I don't know he's played by Don Granberry and like I his character is so fucking repellent he's so good at doing this character <laughs> he's awful he, yeah. um, he, he's also in Death Weekend in a in a pretty much identical role like it's not quite as coded as as this role you know but um that's that's weird because he's like a sort of semi he's he's like he's a guy that just sort of like looks like a guy with long hair like i i feel i don't know how he sort of found himself um being sort of typecast as like the um sort of you know uh, chortling psychopath i'm I, just as an aside, as my hair grows longer and longer during the pandemic, um, every now and then I'll look at myself in the mirror and think, like, I'm becoming this type of guy, like in looks, you know, I'm becoming like the hitch, the hitchhiker in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'm becoming a Kopech, like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the same, same, Dan. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, r- rounding out this all-star criminal lineup, you have the guy whose uh, only crime that he likes committing is rape. And you better believe there's a long scene of him doing just exactly that yeah. in this movie. Very so it's like there's a lot of it's 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 very unpleasant. There's a lot of wild, like sort of tonal shifts in this movie. This one has got to be the hardest of them. And when I was a. Uh, just, just looking for stuff to read about this movie. I, I saw someone's plot summary of this movie and they were describing the characters and then they were like, it also features Belinda Montgomery, who you may remember as Don Johnson's ex-girlfriend from Miami Vice. Here, she's as beautiful as always. And like her character in this movie is just rape victim. Yes. 
there's like there's not much else to that character and, and, going on here. And no. if you want to talk about total shifts, like what happens is these like brutal, sadistic crimes uh, intercut with a uh, Greek wedding that appears to be yeah. just sort of you know carrying on despite the blackout. A, a, a giant Greek wedding is going on in this apartment building featuring character. Only comic relief was invited to this wedding, and I don't know if you guys clocked this. But the groom at the Greek wedding has one of the most dramatic unibrows I have yes, ever seen. Yeah. Yes, ever. Yeah. And like, and then, the, and then he wasn't—he wasn't the only one. There was like, it was like an entire wedding party of guys with unibrows. But the guy getting married is sort of like, it, like it's Greek custom that like if you have the strongest band of hair on your head, then you get to choose your wife. Well, you know, like it's like a wolf pack thing. So like, I had a strange reaction watching all the Greek wedding scenes because my my wife is Macedonian and you know every you know once they introduced it as a Greek wedding, as the criminals got closer and closer to the Greek wedding, I, I started sympathizing with them, and I, and I was like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, let's let's go, let's fucking go, let's let's take back Thessaloniki, let's do it. <laughs> Um, also, I, sh- I should also mention that um, another resident of the apartment building, another another victim of this uh, crime gang's evil blackout crimes, is of course played by the great Ray Millant, uh, who you may remember from uh, such films as Billy Wilder's The Lost Weekend and X, The Man with X Ray Eyes. Uh, but there's a little bit of sort of like, and, uh, uh, what is it? That thing with two heads as well. Yeah. Too, right. Um, but like, there's a little bit of sort of like, uh, like I don't know, uh, class black comedy going on here because he's like he's the rich asshole of the building, and like I said, it is very like like shivers or high rise, and that like the further up the staircase they get, the richer and more assholeish the uh, their victims get, and like this guy is basically willing to have his wife be killed in front of him, but then when they threaten to burn his art collection, he coughs up the number to his safe immediately. <laughs> They like they're they're like we're gonna kill your wife if you don't give us the combo to the safe and she's like please I'm not as strong as you just tell them the code and he's like honey you have to learn to be strong you can't negotiate with terrorists it'll never end yeah we don't negotiate <laughs> with terrorists stiff upper lip yeah yes, I, a wife replaceable by fifteen thousand dollars <laughs> no thank you yeah. Uh, and this guy, uh, they caught they caught him lacking too in like a funny way because like when they burst into his apartment, he already has a handgun pointed at the door. But then Robert Carradine's character is like, "Hey, if you shoot me now, I'm like gonna shoot the, uh, your wife." And he doesn't even have the gun trained on him. Like this guy sort of started blasting as soon as they walked in the door. But he folds like a fucking card table and then has his art art collection burned in front of him. Yeah, yeah. And, and then of course, uh, uh, Jim Jim Mitchum uh, just sort of ambles into the room with a fire extinguisher. <laughs> well, well, uh, what's going on here? Is it fire or something? Uh, oh, all right. <laughs> uh, whatever. I guess I, I'll just use this. And it's, again, like two minutes of just him gamely putting out every element of the Just fire. fucking stumbling, or, I mean, stumbling they're, they're, around the apartment. Stop, like lumbering around the apartment, spraying the fire extinguisher. And then when he sees Don Granberry's character, Kopech, the very clearly insane firebug, uh, he's like, "What are who are you? What are you doing here? And like, it's just... It's incredible. <laughs> He's the one cop in the building and he keeps getting beset with all of these problems. Like there's a woman like who's going into labor in the, the staircase. And then he just like people are like, you have to help us. You have to help us. Like, well, all right. Just uh, wait, wait here. We'll get, we'll get a ladder or something. I'll be, I'll be right back. <laughs> um, and just another element is performance and the portrayal of the NYPD in this movie. I don't know if it was like the late 70s or whatever, but like some of the biggest mustaches I've ever seen outside of a Tom of Finland drawing for men in uniform. Let's put it that oh, way. Yeah. And uh, 
The other funny thing is like Jim Mitchum is such a funny performance because like I'd never seen Jim Mitchum in a movie before, but he looks identical to his father, but has zero of the charisma or like, you know, style or like anything. He's just like, it's just yeah. ultimate knockoff brand Robert Mitchum yeah, he's <laughs> like, with like absolutely none of the talent. He's like the pod person version of, of Mitchum, basically. Yeah. Just just devoid, devoid of yeah. charisma entirely. Well, yeah. If we're talking. If we're, if if I may make a brief Mitchum digression, um, if 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 we do, if we could start the Mitchum digression segment, I, I looked into sort of Robert Mitchum's other uh, awful sons uh, who don't never succeeded in anything, and uh, Chris Mitchum is another one, uh, and Chris Mitchum, um, he ran uh, in uh, two thousand in nineteen ninety eight, two thousand twelve, and two thousand fourteen. Uh, as a Republican for the California State Assembly in the uh, uh, for California State Assembly, sorry, in '98, and the House of Representatives uh, in the 24th Congressional District in 2012 and 2014, uh, attempting to unseat a uh, Democratic, uh, uh, coming very close to unseating uh, the Democratic uh, uh, incumbent named Lois Caps, who uh, was named uh, by a survey the nicest member of Congress in 2006. <laughs> <laughs> She's resting on her laurels. Yeah. Get her out of there. Get Chris Mitchum in there. We yeah. need some new blood in DC. We need a guy. We, we need a guy. Just drain the swamp. <laughs> Mitchum's gonna clean this place just, up. Who's? <laughs> we need a guy who's who. He should make James Mitchum his chief of staff, just blundering into and out of rooms, not knowing what appropriations subcommittee he's on. Uh, it'd be great. The- there's a really funny scene in like in the opening scene of Blackout where like it's like before you know Jim Mitchum is a cop, it's like him and his wife are walking along the street and they see this old lady get mugged and like her, her handbag is grabbed by some street thug. And then he just like he does the Seagal style run, like the very awkward, like jerky style of sprinting. Yeah. And he tries to chase down this uh, this mugger and then runs square into like a fucking <laughs> He runs yes. square into a bunch of suits being put into a store, and then immediately gives up. Uh, and <laughs> like, well, he's just like he well, gets flummoxed by by the by a rack of blazers, and he's like, "Wow, man, what, what am I doing here?" Well, he's on the ground. There's a very realistic performance by the guy wheeling the fucking blazer cart out, who's like, "What the fuck, man? I'm I'm trying to do my fucking job here. Like, what what are you doing?" Well, he's just like, "I think he literally says I'm working." He's like he's like rolling around in the suit, fucking jackets and pants, and the guy's just going, "I'm working here. I gotta work here. What are you doing?" And he never identifies himself as a cop. He's just some random asshole who just barreled into this well, poor schmuck there, at Canal no, Street or whatever. At, at no point does uh, the Jim Mitchum character, whatever his name in the film may be, actually identify himself as a cop. He's just he even lo- I think he loses his jacket at some point, so yes. he's just like blundering in and out of various rooms, just shooting. People. Solving problems are making them worse. Yeah, it's funny because uh, like Robert Carradine's first brilliant crime idea is to steal the uniform of like the guys driving the paddy wagon, so that he pretends to be a cop to gain access to people's homes to rob and torture them. Um, but I mean, he has the right idea. When you're dressed like a cop, you, you identify yourself as such. That's sort of how it works. So yes. I mean, if you're, are we almost suggesting that the um the portrayal of of New York as just uh, a yeah, you know, I say yeah, it's it's a fundamentally like dysfunctional place, and no oh, God, one is yeah. more dysfunctional than our hero, really. Yeah, that's why I think that's why I think it's a credible depiction of New York City. Yeah, yeah. do you remember the, the there's I, there's also like the the great building of tension moment 
uh, where uh, Jim Mitchum, having been um, effortlessly kidnapped and hogtied by Robert Carradine, uh, is hooked up to like some wires that as soon as the power goes back on, we think saving the city from its uh, plight at the hands of the uh, the blackout gang uh, will, in fact, uh, electrocute him uh, in a. Uh, yeah. Sa- again. A, 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 a very a, a very uh, 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 cool scene, I think. Yeah. Uh, two thumbs up to that scene. Two thumbs up to that scene. What will? What's your what's your final verdict on Blackout? I thought I thought it was pretty good. I mean, honestly, like I was I was entertained by it. It had that good kind of like sleazy exploitation film quality to it. Um, there were parts of it that were pretty funny, and like I I just I like any movie that's kind of like a keyhole glimpse of like the apocalypse or just like the unraveling of society. And an apartment building is like a great vehicle for that. You know, there was an, another, another. I mean, this is incredibly off topic, but uh, one of my favorite um, of the dead. I think my, probably my, my one of my one of my preferred of the dead movies, uh, Land of the Dead, is kind of the same thing, just an, an apocalypse, but through the perspective of like a lux, the last luxury apartment building yeah. in America mm. as it gets slowly overtaken by zombies, just because they wouldn't um, give John Leguizamo an apartment. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much. They wouldn't let him in on the on the condo association. So, <laughs> to, uh, the the class warfare in Land of the Dead begins yeah. uh, begins afresh. Uh, just one last thing about uh, Blackout. It has a great death scene when Robert Carradine dies at the end he like tries to get away in a car and like it it's just one of those random movie things where a car like crashes and then immediately explodes and he's like on fire he's like he's trying to he's running towards Jim Mitchum on fire and his last words are I'll kill you you bastard right before the flames just fully engulf him and he just falls down in a pile of ash that kind of made it for me that scene kind of made it for me and I half expected Mitchum to just unload into his flaming corpse you know like (laughs) but See, that, that was a Canadian touch. It was just yeah. a little polite. If in America, he would have said a one-liner and then dumped a clip into like his ashen body. <laughs> so it was just a little polite. Yeah. It was just well, like, look, the, you know, the, like he's a bad guy, well, but that's a, that's the Canadian it's a harsh influence. way for anyone to go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for yeah. Sure. You, know, um, you don't get the tax break if you're too mean about the film. That's right. <laughs> Which is funny because there's a lot of a, a, astonishing acts of cruelty in this movie. Like when Robert Carradine just shuts off that guy's breathing device. Oh, yeah. Right before he leaves the apartment for no reason. Or just murdering a magici- yeah, well, yeah, yeah. magician in front of his dog. <laughs> oh, that was terrible. Oh, that no. poor French magician yeah. and his dog. Uh, oh, man. If they had killed the dog, that would have been too much for yeah. me. Yeah. yeah. Well, they're, they're not um, slate. Well, look, they're it, not look. slate columnists, Will. You know, they have morals. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Uh, the last, last thing about... I mean, we, we've been done like four last things about Blackout. It's just there are so many things about this movie. Uh, is that what, what I always, I re- one of my biggest like pet peeves in film is uh, when a character will be telegraphed to be co- like you a character is shown to be very good at what they're doing by being telegraphing how bored they are with something exciting going on around them. Uh, what it's like if someone will be in a gun battle and uh, not like and, and then you know they'll sort of just like wander into it, do a quip, and then um you know ebbs commit you know this um act of incredible violence with ease um and i i feel like yeah the, the the jim mitchum sleepwalking performance is like the the other side of that but i see basically like no difference uh between i don't know fucking I- iron man joking around with his friends while you know doing some kind of you know, acrobatic uh alien fighting uh and uh, jim mitchum wandering into a burning uh, apartment and then just kind of, sort of kind of <laughs> desultorily putting out the fires of the nearby flamethrower yeah 
He's his entire performance is like uh, I think could be summed up as like low energy oaf, like like not an entertaining oaf, but like yeah. a like a nar- like a nar- narcoticized yeah, yeah. oaf, you know, like an like an oaf after like a really big uh, turkey leg and like a whole barrel of mead. <laughs> <laughs> I also love the scene where Ray Milland is like, uh, you know, inconsolable looking at the, you know, uh, heap of the mound of ashes that was his priceless art collection. He's like, it's irreplaceable, absolutely irreplaceable. And then Oaf Jim Mitchum is just like, well, you still, still got your life. So you can keep collecting <laughs> art if you want. There's more paintings out there. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! You know what it was? I was fig- I was trying to figure out uh, who that character reminds me of. I'm gonna come back to Seinfeld. It's Mr. Pitt. Oh shit! Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Th- this is how this yep. is how Mr. Pitt yeah. became who he was. He was. This is Mr. Pitt's villain origin story. Uh, he was in. He was. Uh, he was uh, accosted by the blackout gang, and, and that's why he's so yeah, weird after, about his after- Snickers bars. <laughs> Exactly, and after yeah, that's his wife left him after he callously <laughs> was willing to sacrifice her life <laughs> for ten thousand dollars. That's it. But Will, she had grace. <laughs> yes. So, so Will, uh. like, I think you you accurately like picked up on on the uh, the connection between this film and and Cronenberg's first movie. Uh, uh, sorry, Cronenberg's first movie, Shivers. Which they they both they both kind of pull from that J.G. Ballard high rise and and the just ambient uh, terror of uh, other human beings that was sort of in the air in the 1970s. Yeah, but it's but it's a very middle class. It's like because uh, all, all those movies like Death Wish or whatever are or the Warriors are about like a middle class fear of like the like urban poor. But like in this movie, it's like it it only it like outside the criminals themselves, it only features like the middle class. Yeah. And like like with Shivers, it's like this very nice apartment building. It's about it's about like sort of like uh, like a disease and like social like the the body politic itself like mutating and 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 like sort of spinning into chaos. But in this like highly manicured, nice middle class existence, and like a lot of American films really never do that. Yeah, no, it's true. And you know, so the the second movie we watched, uh, I was going to say, even oh, yeah. even Go when ahead. American films do, even when American fi- like the, some of the most notable examples of American films do. Doing that are or, or trying to like convey the same kind of message, right? Uh, are is something like uh, I don't know, like the the hills have eyes, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, or whatever. But in all those cases, the urban yuppies are out of their element. The criminals never they're come into. They're out of their element, yeah. and, and it's always like they're never the butt of the joke. Mm-hmm. Unlike in this movie, in Shivers, like the vic- the victims in this movie are really who's being satirized, yeah. not the vicious psychotic criminals who are abusing. <laughs> Absolutely, them. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, they, they, uh, so bring back the tax breaks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Therefore, the, the the second movie that we uh, that we looked at from this era is is actually Cronenberg's fourth film, um, Scanners. So he'd made uh, at this point he'd made Shivers, uh, he'd made Rabid, which in itself is kind of like an expanded remake of Shivers. I think you could argue in a lot of ways, and then. Uh, Absolutely, it's like it's it's just like it's it's the same it's the same theme of shivers, but wrought on like society at large instead of just one discrete like apartment complex. Yeah, I see. I see um, shivers and rabbit as kind of like his uh, Day of the Dead and or uh, his Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead in a way. You know, like the absolutely the action kind yeah. of expands the, the sex zombie movies. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so 
So Scanners was his fourth film. He made it after uh, The Brood, which is a very disturbing film he made about his own divorce. Uh, but but Scanners, you know, he'd had early financial success, not necessarily critical success with Shivers. Um, and it did that movie did win. Uh, it won a bunch of awards in Europe, but but wasn't really sort of. Uh, critically acclaimed in in Canada, um, and we'll we'll get to that a little later. But so you know, by 1981, um, the tax shelter thing is in full swing, and Scanners is made. The production starts when it's half written, because the way this process works is there is available money. Uh, you got to go in and pitch the doctors and the dentists and the businessmen, and then you have to make the movie real quick. So. Uh, Scanners started production as uh, as like really just a treatment, um, and it was originally titled "The Sensitives." the The alternate title for it was uh, "Telepathy 2000," which is <laughs> which kind of tells you like where uh, they I wanna, were I wanna where live they in... were at the script process, you know. <laughs> like, I, I want to live in the alternate universe where we're talking about telepathy two thousand. Uh, that sounds very fun to me. Um, according to the producer, the shoot was, quote unquote, torture. Um, and that was compounded by the fact that uh, one of the stars, Jennifer O'Neill, did not read the script before agreeing to shoot the film and did not realize it was a horror movie. So according to according to the producer, the scanner's original script had what he says, uh, many, many exploding heads. And O'Neill threatened to walk off unless that number was, quote, greatly reduced. Well, you know what, though? But the one that we're left with is so memorable and perfect that it's hard to imagine if they had thrown in a couple more exploding heads. I mean, the effect of that one head explosion would be a little bit uh, degraded. Yeah, I, I yeah, totally yeah. agree. It's the, uh, it, it would be less. It, it would absolutely be a, a less iconic moment. Um, apparently, they reached that. Um, they, they figured out how to get the exploding head just right uh, by taking months of practice work at a unheated Montreal warehouse. And... And the, the 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 final key was uh, this really frustrated practical effects technician just put a shotgun underneath the prosthetic and pulled the trigger, and they were like, "Ah, that's awesome! Um, <laughs> it works so beautifully." So, so Will, do you want to do you want to walk us through uh, scanners? Uh, well, I mean, scanners is you know, uh, man, it's like the. the, the if, if only like the nation of Panama could just exist to mint future David Cronenbergs, I'd have no problem with their, you know, tax shelter policy. But, you know, Scanners is like a masterpiece, in my opinion. And like it's it's it, it, the fourth movie. It's like definitely the most, um, you know, sort of accessible of Cronenberg's early films of like, a you know, an unbroken hot streak of like you mentioned those first three and then going right into Scanners, which is, you know, I think pro- was probably his most successful movie to date. Um, but like, I honestly like it. Rewatching it, it really reminds like it's just it has all the makings of like a proto superhero film. Oh like, yeah, the scanners really are kind of superheroes, but like but but because it's Cronenberg, it has like the same kind of it's some kind of like a sort of adolescent power fantasy where like you know you're just this like loser nobody like Stephen Lack, and then you realize like oh wait a second I'm a scanner and I can do it all mm-hmm. I can do it all with my brain, and you're talking like you know cyberpunk shit like hacking Consec through the fucking like a like a like a, a public payphone where you like you like your your the, the nervous system of your brain like fucking like uh, interfaces directly with a computer system 
to like hack it that that scene is incredible and then just like yeah like telepathy to like uh kill people with your mind uh make them do things like it just Mm -hmm. just like pure mental powers but like because it's cronenberg it has that sort of adolescent power fulfillment fantasy but undercut by like this horrible uh biological toll that it takes on you that like the exercising these powers like uh, like wreaks such a, t- a toll on your body itself, and like the incredible last scene of the movie, yeah, yes. where like all their veins burst and they catch on fire. It's just yeah, like it's just it's really creepy, like inhuman thing where like the 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 exercise of these powers doesn't come with like cost free, you know. So that's what I I really enjoy about scanners and like the other thing you meant we mentioned in the, the earlier uh, this kind of vague feel of like North America, where like if you're an American watching this movie, like everyone appears as American like they, they you could you could you could believe they're American but because it's filmed in, in Montreal it has this like weird like otherworldly quality to it like you know it's not Europe but it's not quite America mm-hmm. either and it has this weird kind of like uh, sort of sort of like uncanny valley effect it's, in terms of like the, the the environment that it depicts I was gonna say like a lot of those shots like especially the um, phone hacking scene is you know there's this area outside of downtown Montreal on the way to the airport that still looks like that and and you know cronenberg did such a good job of of sort of capturing this uh Bilardian, like mixed use industrial business netherworld of of, of yeah, office parks yes, and yeah techno parks like like every time i drive by there i can only think of cronenberg you know like he he really captured it better than anyone else it's it's this contrast like in shivers between this like very sterile kind of modern architecture and interiors with like the disgusting uh like you know the the fluids and inner workings of like the meat factory that is the human body like exploding itself or inverting itself or just spilling out into the world yes I mean, you, you, you also you talk of, of Montreal, but even there's well, there's less Toronto in it. There's still some, there is still some sort of bits that, I, I, like the, the the meeting um, between uh, Revik and uh, the the security chief that takes place takes place in uh, a station in the Toronto subway that was built like for a mall, um, and that it, it, there's it, it also it looks exactly like that still today. Like you can walk through that subway station and it is identical, um, but I think I I wonder right again like talking of these sort of you know almost like um uh, you know grotesque sort of uh peri peri urban environments shopping malls business parks I I wonder if it's sort of no coincidence as well like that he was like yes we're going to pick the subway station built for the mall as uh, as where the two meet and and cook up their sort of uh, uh, evil plan. So yeah, essentially, like Scanners is kind of a superhero movie. It's about a guy who discovers that he has uh, sort of superhuman powers and abilities. You know, called scanning, which is like you know, like it, it just it's a highly powerful form of telepathy. That if you master, it gives you basically limitless control over other human beings. But of course, there are other scanners, and you know, the main character Stephen Lack is inducted into the world of being a scanner by you know this sort of. Uh, Shady pseudo government scientists played by the great Patrick McGowan. Um, yes. And then, of course, like, but they're like the scanners, the abilities of scanners and the existence of them are sort of known and controlled by this, uh, like, yeah, shady, like semi private public defense contractor called Consec. 
And like they, they want to use scanners for their own purposes, but there is, you know, there's a scanner rebellion out there led by the great, the great, the god, Daryl Revick, played by immaculately one of the best like horror movie villain performances, aka not really the villain of the movie, actually the hero, Michael Ironside. It's so good, it's just, man. So unforgettable, so unforgettable in this movie is the villain. It makes up for the rather lackluster performance of the main character. Yeah, I think it totally works, actually, that that um, the Cameron Vale character, you know, Stephen Lack's portrayal of Cameron Vale is so hollow and, and wooden. It just gives space for Ironside to come in and just dominate. You know, <laughs> I mean, you even you even talk about the superhero about this is almost a proto superhero movie. I mean, a superhero movie loves to have a kind of. You know, just like a, a sort of um, a, a tabula rasa main character, just like someone who's sort of just there uh, to be projected on. But because it's a horror superhero movie, <laughs> I guess it, it also just means, as you say, yeah, the uh, that um, Michael Ironside just becomes uh, sort of the much more the kind of focus of in the center of attention rather than your power fantasy about being uh, Cameron Vale. Yeah, because like, and also what I really appreciate about this, like sort of as a superhero movie is that I like the idea that like, yeah, like if people with these powers existed, they would, I mean, if they're allowed to live at all, it will certainly be under the aegis and thumb of some fucking evil corporation like Concept. Yes. Who wants to use them. And like the existence of any scanner outside of this apparatus is, of course, a threat. And uh, what what Cameron Vale finds out is that like Daryl Revick and his sort of like revolution that he's leading is like, we're... We like we surpass normal human beings in every fucking regard. Like, so why should why should they have power over us? But like for him and his sort of uh, scanner revolution, any scanner that's not down for the cause needs to be killed because like the only the only real threat to a scanner is another more powerful scanner. That's so right. if if you're not on board with Revix revolution, you got to He's taking you out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and also there was there's I was. I wrote. I was just going to say, uh, sort of, to sort of all of these points. I wrote down uh, a quote actually from the beginning. Doctor Ruth says to Vale, "Which is, uh, you are thirty-five years old, but why are you such a derelict, a piece of human garbage? It is because you are a scanner. It has been the source of all your misery. But I can show you, it can be a source of great power." Um, and again, that just that really seems to be speaking to again these. These very same, you know, ten these not just the power fantasy as well, but the um like the power dynamic as it's eventually played out between, you know, like uh Revic and Vale, where they're sort of um sort of burning each other up. Uh where it it, it burns him up, it burns they all they all burn because of this um you know, this this uh this great power because it stays a source of misery in effect. I don't know, I just that's um I gotta say, I I, I really appreciated this film. Yeah. Scanners is, is is it's a masterpiece. This is yeah. a five bagger for me. Like this is one of the best like horror action sci-fi movies. It's a sort of a blend of all three of those genres. But man, oh man, does it fucking hit? Yeah, and it's it's you could feel him gearing up for like Videodrome in the in this film too. Uh, and you know, watching it watching it for the fourth or fifth time now. Like when I watched it recently, uh, one thing that struck me was. It's it's definitely informed by uh, all the revelations about MK Ultra that were coming out in Montreal at that time. Like th- that undercurrent is there. We did an episode early on uh, with Michael Judge about the Allen Memorial Institute here and the CIA's uh, brainwashing program <laughs> that they were oh, running. Oh, the, um, the equivalent. The equivalent is called the Crane Psychiatric Institute. That's where Daryl is dr- like trepanned did- himself. 
Yes. Yeah. What's so What's so dope is like, in, especially in like early Cronenberg movies, like his his very like his most Canadian movies, like the source of like, I, I won't say evil, but the source of like horror is always like located in some sort of shady institute. Yes. Or like semi-public private corporation. It's all yeah. It's like yeah, like the something psychiatric center, Consec. It's just all of these sort of like. Uh, bland windowless buildings and they're like manicured office parks or like these psychiatric or academic or like organizations that have weird funding. It's extremely MK ultra. I almost want to ask in that it's sort of in the context of all of this then, I mean, because it, you also have the hippie scanners, right? You yes. have the, um, you have on the, what you have the, uh, the government, like the government control or the government adjacent consec with its manicured office buildings. You have, the um, you might say a uh, violent revolutionary in the form of Revic, but then uh, you have the um, uh, 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 in the form of uh, what's his name uh, Ben Pierce, uh, his the artist with sort of his scanner friends who sort of uh, and and the the hippie scanners who like who try to meld their powers into one and just like enjoy uh, what appears to be a, a telekinetic orgy that gets uh, busted up by some guys with shotguns. That's actually a huge yeah, goal. That's a those. huge <laughs> goal, Riley, because like, yeah, that just that split between Revex camp and the painters camp um, sort of illustrates the the sort of decay of the leftist movement in, in the 70s where, you know, you've got violent revolutionaries on one hand and then on the other hand, you've got people doing like what's basically like an amped up B-in to sort of do self-improvement. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, of, um, and of course, uh, of course, Riley, in Cronenberg's, Cronenberg's lens, the hippies are punished by, you know, they're all yeah. basically yeah. murdered. They're, yeah, they're wiped out. <laughs> they're liquidated. Um, <laughs> uh, you mentioned, uh, Riley, you mentioned the artist character, Benjamin Pierce. Uh, I got to give a shout out to the actor who plays him, Robert A. Silverman, mm. Who is sort of like a Cronenberg stock character? He's just like the go-to weirdo. Which uh, you know, if it's a Cronenberg movie, you got to have one of those. But he's in—he was in The Brood, he's in Existence, and he's in Naked Lunch as well. And I think at least one or two other Cronenberg movies as well. But he—I always love seeing that guy show up. And he's one of those guys that like—he's like I only ever see him in Cronenberg movies. Like I, I don't think I can name another movie he's been in. Mm. <laughs> he's, got, he's got an incredible face, you know, for Cronenberg to play with. Oh yeah, I mean, if you're the weirdo in a Cronenberg film, uh, you have you you have put all your points. In, you have specced as a weirdo. Which is funny because Cronenberg himself would become like uh, the weirdo in several other people's films. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, also, as you said, most uh, recently, Star Trek Discovery. Yes. <laughs> also, uh, Naked Lunch, uh, punchline of one of my favorite Simpsons jokes, where they sneak into the R-rated movie. <laughs> Barton I can think of at least fake. two things wrong with that movie. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I digress. Yeah. So, um, yeah. scanners. We all we could all agree. Scanners, great success, amazing product oh, of yeah. uh, this tax shelter system. Uh, just like for me, yeah, ten out of ten would watch again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are the uh, scanners. Scanners, you are the lock of the week uh, from the bottleman. Uh, you heard it here first. But, you know, so like not everyone uh, domestically was in love uh, with with David Cronenberg's uh, nihilistic vision of, of uh, the, the future present. And, and ben, one are of the- you suggesting to me that some kind of 
some kind of um, Ontario-based uh, <laughs> sort of uh, social milieu might not have appreciated having its monocle dropped into a bowl of soup. Hard to believe, but uh, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Um, so that, an, an early and vocal critic of Cronenberg was uh, this Canadian journalist, Robert Fulford, um, who's been described as, uh, quote, on the more conservative side of the liberal spectrum, which is very, very true. Um, he's written a bunch of books. Uh, more than a few of them are about the city of Toronto. Uh, and in the 1970s, he was the editor-in-chief of a general interest magazine called Saturday Night, where he cowardly wrote f- uh, c- film criticism under a pseudonym, uh, Marshall Delaney. And uh, in 1975, writing as Delaney, he published a, like a full frontal attack on Cronenberg's first film, on Shivers, which we talked about. Um, the article was titled, You Should Know How Bad This Movie Is, After All, You Paid For It. Um, oh boy. and I, I found this article. Um, I dug it up. It took me a couple of days to find it, but I found it and I want to read you guys, uh, some of, uh, Fulford, AKA Marshall Delaney, uh, some of his criticism of Cronenberg and, and Shivers in general. So, um, I'm going to enjoy this. It begins, uh, and well, you might you might recognize that you might recognize this tone from uh, some some American uh, op-ed writers that you guys frequently criticize on your podcast. There's there's a through line here. Um, so it begins: if using public money to produce films like The Parasite Murders, which is what Shivers was originally titled, uh, is the only way that English Canada can have a film industry, then perhaps English Canada should not have a film industry. Ah <laughs> uh, yes, a, uh, a, a, and that that certainly didn't uh, come true. Yeah. One should say, yeah. I love that. He, I mean, I love, I love that he's he's trying to he's trying to strangle in the crib the career of the guy who is bar none the single most celebrated and respected Canadian film director of all time. Well, mm-hmm. the, well, not just him because he goes on to say, one should say it straight out: the Parasite Murders, written and directed by David Cronenberg and produced by Ivan Reitman. Uh, who we've established would go on to uh, produce the most, uh, the highest grossing Canadian film of all time uh, until Bon Cop, Bad Cop um, and Ghostbusters. <laughs> um, so the Parasite Murders written and directed by David Cronenberg and produced by Ivan Reitman with $70,000 of Canadian taxpayer money is an atrocity. It is a, degra- a disgrace to everyone connected with it, <laughs> including the taxpayers. The question it raises is an old one now, but the Parasite Murders brings brings it to life again. Should we subsidize junk or worse than junk in order to create a quote unquote industry that will also possibly produce in- indigenous and valuable feature films? This is the opening salvo. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and given what ended up happening to the Canadian film industry, uh, Fulford more or less got his wish. Yeah. Uh, we more or less stopped doing anything uh, until Bon Cop, Bad Cop, basically. Uh, yeah. Which uh, listeners of this podcast will remember, uh, we subjected uh, CJ from Eat Chain to and caused him to lose some sanity points because it is a piece of shit. It sure is, and the sequel is even worse. But that's like this is this is so 1970s Ontario, right? Because Ontario's whole thing was that it is it is the sort of uh, upright Anglican, uh, very Anglo. A lot of like United Empire loyalists, people who like 
wanted the U.S. to remain a British colony, like descendants of United Empire loyalists, basically, um, who were super, super conservative. Like, I, like my mom, uh, when she was in university, she worked as a bartender. And like the um, laws governing like, you know, uh, fun were so intense that uh, you would be like you would get a ticket from the police if you stood up from a table while care- holding a beer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the no fun zone. Yeah. Got it. It, Ontario yeah. was like it was Toronto. It was the Toronto's name throughout Canada was Toronto the good. And it was a disparaging name because it was this just like. Um, very prim, waspy city that was like prime to you know have its monocle ejected into some soup by uh, you know directors who were going to rattle some cages, and you know I mean the problem is right like those people kind of kept just getting their wish about the direction of the culture of Canada, and you know we or at least in terms of like the stuff that gets like funded or the big big stuff that gets made here it's either as an american backlot or it just like it never sort of it never has the kind of um sort of like size ambition sort of scale or weirdness like the early cronenberg films and i mean it goes to show right like cronenberg basically is graduates to being a sort of uh, american director yeah, uh, and if uh, he it doesn't stop being Canadian, but like he just becomes a Hollywood director. We do not get a yeah. His movies Canadian. don't have that like unmistakably Canadian feel yeah. that like his first first handful of movies. Yeah, did. I mean he still films all his movies in Canada, and I think he still makes money. I think so. He still makes movie with money from the Canadian government. Yeah. I think he does. He does. But, um, but yeah, like. Um, but yeah, like uh, the, 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 these first four that we're talking about are like just so unmistakably Canadian mm. that they do represent something like something, yes, indigenous to Canada. I will say, though, about this this guy who wanted to, you know, uh, stop his career before it started. I think it's just between Shivers, uh, Rabid and The Brood. Uh, Cronenberg was giving up the game on how op-ed writers are actually created. Like, how do you, yes. how do you, like, literally, I mean, they're certainly not born, these sex-obsessed freaks. They're sort of, they bud off of other columnists, as as we see in The End of the Brute, where it's sort of, you you project all of your negative emotions and sexual pathologies into, like, a physical form, and then it just sort of sprouts off of your midsection. Yes. And then, and then oh, you get, look who, it's, it's Ross yeah. that everybody. Yeah, so you've got Fulford as, like, sort of the brood mother at Saturday night uh, and then he, and then you have these little homunculuses uh, at say the Ottawa yes, citizen exactly. or so I read I read through a lot of uh, you know like era specific criticism of, of Cronenberg's early work and what you're saying will is absolutely accurate after this Fulford article there are sort of sound alike articles coming out all across the country until after shiver or after scanners rather and then very much after like the dead zone, Cronenberg uh, became too much of a thing for people to ignore. So you, you had this weird period of his career where his films were getting panned by, uh, you know, capital C critics. But these same newspapers were also dutifully doing like three or four page interviews with him because he's, you know, at the time, probably the most recognizable Canadian director. And he's getting offered shit like Empire Strikes Back or Top Gun. God, I would have, God, I would give anything to see Cronenberg's version of a Star Wars movie. I mean, maybe I wouldn't want to see that, but man, oh man, I just, I think he was, uh, he was offered Total Recall too. Yeah, that's right. So it was. They were going to do a version of Total Recall with William Hurt. 
Yep. Instead of Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Total Recall, <laughs> Top Gun, Empire Strikes Back, and Flashdance. And I and like for me, the missing Cronenberg uh want to see movie is is Top Gun. Because I want to see Maverick and Goose um just like enmeshed in uh biomechanical tubing going down in flames yeah. into the ocean, you know? Like I think I think I think Cronenberg doing Top Gun would slowly become indistinguishable from the film adaptation of the book Blind Sight. It was just immediately like just you you would become an, enmeshed in an organic network with your jet. Uh, Goose's death scene would be much more uh, drawn out. <laughs> it's the modification of the human body through technology. That's what Top Gun is about. That's right. That's right. So wait, so is the so, Empire yeah. Strikes Back? Wait, so 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 is Flashdance? What the hell? What's going on? Uh, this is the cyberpunk future past we could have had. So, but yeah. so, so if, if it, only for the, not for the the terrible Fulford clan. Yes. So in and, doing, and, and, and 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 his various awful spawn. In, yeah, I was going to say, in doing research for this, I found out that uh, the Fulford family legacy of, like, fussy scolding um, has been kept alive by his daughter, Sarah, who is the editor-in-chief of... God, she's awful. One of the most hateable publications in North America, uh, Toronto Life, a magazine uh, that seems to survive entirely on, like, hate clicks or as a resource for identifying class enemies. Uh yeah, it it's, is, it's a spite magazine. It is a spite magazine, and uh, I think I think the the most repellent thing that uh, Fulford's daughter published was a Toronto Life article from 2017 entitled "We Bought a Crack House." <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's, um, oh, I, don't, I don't know if this one made it south. Again, I feel like um, like a lot of our awful columnists could really make it big if Americans would just like pay attention to them. But the problem is like if Americans read "We Bought a Crack House" by Sarah Fulford, then like she would just become an American op-ed columnist, and then it would fall to uh, Canadians to point out that actually she's Canadian. Um, but uh, the, the the sort of the whole story of this was that like a. A, uh, a fa- there's like this long Quillette length article. It's like ten thousand words or whatever um, of this family uh, that purchases a and this is sort of in the early 2010s a, a house in a very trendy uh, Toronto neighborhood uh, called Parkdale, uh, which was sort of known for be it has a high population of uh, population of renters. Uh, it ha- also has like a lot of cool businesses and artists, but also notably. Um, was the site of a sort of uh, social experiment done by the Canadian government in the seventies, where like the local, like a, a mental, like an, a, a mental institution in the area, was just emptied onto the streets to see if people would naturally reintegrate into uh, society, sort of organically without the intervention of any other institution. They looked um, at uh, Reagan's so- San Francisco project and were like, "That looks good. We should try that here." Yeah, yeah. Uh, and even, and so it's got this like it has a history of being somewhat down at heel, uh, but is yeah this like sort of this neighborhood, and it has like been it's like ground zero basically for Toronto gentrification. It was like the first big gentrification place, and um, and because like real estate in Canada is like we as, as we sort of talked about in another episode of this show, it's like we had the same kind of financial crisis and bailout, but it was all disguised, tech, done technocratically and without any politics. And so no one noticed. And so all the real estate prices just kept marching up like without a blip. Um, 
and so what what we get is um uh people sort of slowly getting priced out of this area and so this article in Toronto Life is written where this like you know a family uh purchases a house for like a half a million dollars having never seen it before um, and then goes to sort of take possession of it and find that it is occupied by several people because it was being used as like a rooming house. Um, yes, SROs, and basically. The, yeah. And uh, the whole the whole article is them basically sort of, again, just like uh, Monocle falls into Bowl of Soup, where they're like, they're like, oh, when we smell drugs coming from the other room and uh, this, this, and this man sort of sort of stroking his fearsome looking dogs, just staring at us. Well, basically, they're like, we were just trying to kick them out of their home and they weren't courteous <laughs> to us. We pay good money for it. And like halfway through the article, uh. they're like, luckily, we still owned a nearby condo, but it was only 900 square feet. How could we fit our family of, uh, of three in there? And um, just, could someone could someone please just stuff a sex slug down these people's throat? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And yeah. And it's like it, on and on it goes to be like, uh, you know, again, like these these people just, you know, and quite justly so getting uh, fleeced by crooked contractor after crooked contractor uh, to which I say, uh, good. Um, and uh, eventually, you know, that it ends with the triumphant, the, a triumphant set of photos of them in like this, you know, the identikit house that looks like the uh, it, it looks like one of the houses that the queer eye guy does, you know. Um, yeah, just, have, yeah, it's like like they purged the bad elements. You know, they've cleansed yeah. the house, and so yeah, yeah that, it, it 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 now effectively looks like uh, like a doctor's waiting room. Uh, and they're like, thank goodness we uh, we were able to uh, have this. We were able to add this to our portfolio of properties, uh, and the people living in it, I assume, uh, went on to I don't know, win the lottery, die, whatever. I don't care. Fuck off, my house now, uh, and. Uh, yeah, that was like the Ur Toronto life piece. Uh, it is uh, it is certainly one that echoes around in my brain from time to time. Those those people should be funding uh, the modern version of the parasite murders and not displacing people from their homes. <laughs> yes, yes. This is the lesson of today's show. Yes, uh, we we need because I mean, like, look, if you make it so you can write off a hundred percent of the money that you invest in any sleazy exploitation film, then we'll get better movies. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I mean right? Like the the Canadian domestic film industry is basically limited now to Bond Cop, Bad Cop, and its sequels. Yeah. So, like, come on, please, anything we need, we need to bring like. Springtime for Hitler, controversial, but you remember the songs. Like we need to bring the producers back is the logic of our of our cultural economy. Yes. And and you know, like like what are the issues I'm, and he doesn't come out and say it, but that Fulford has with shivers and that I think a lot of gatekeepers of Canadian culture have with art like this is they're looking for a way to run these government projects to promote and codify like a specifically Canadian style of art that represents Canadianness. They don't know what Canadianness is, but they have a vague idea of it. And no one does. Nobody does because no. it's a fake ass country. And when what no, and, like, and no when one what does, hap- least of all Canadians. Yes. And when what happens is by accident, Canada invents the slasher film genre, or you know, uh, in the case of Cronenberg, an entire genre of horror. Uh, these gatekeepers of culture look at what Canada produces at art and as art and says, "Well, this isn't very Canadian." 
but it is. Because <laughs> like, well, no, what, what's Canadian is whatever is it's whatever makes me feel good and whatever I can sort of think that will be respected by Americans. Yeah. Like Canadianness exists purely in the mind of it, it exists purely in the mind of the individual as they compare themselves to America. Yes. Like that's that's the, that's how I see it, right? And and they're like, "Oh, the slash these slasher films aren't that respectable. I don't think we're being that impressive. We're not sort of showing ourselves to be the equal of our neighbor down south. We should be doing something more high-minded, something that will capture the sort of imagination of the of the, you know, writers of the New York Times or or whatever because they have this view that they have to elevate. There is again this the pathology of Canadians is always that we must be elevated to the status of Americans. Mm-hmm. And so it's no it's no sort of surprise that because of because of our need to like try to, d- en- to engage in I don't know essentially like dumping for our cultural industry for like just subsidizing it all to to hell and back to in order to like develop an, a a, nat- like a culture uh, that was um, sort of you know, non-American that was uniquely Canadian that we ended up doing something like that but that what we developed wasn't actually American which is what we think of as good yes. and so we weren't able to tangle with it Hey Canada, um, when 90% of your population lives within about 20 miles of the US border like get over yourself about not being too American <laughs> uh, Yes, exactly <laughs> yeah, it's look, it's just you're it's 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 America, but with a better healthcare system and like part of it speaks French. Like that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean for me yeah. for me, the dystopian techno park outside of the city that is controlled by like a very opaque uh military industrial shady corporation, that to me speaks more of my experience as a Canadian than something like Bon Cop Bad Cop too. Yeah, yeah. It's the it's we don't like we don't like the the vision of ourselves that's reflected back to us in the the movies where we accidentally made good ones for a while. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so R.I.P. the tax credit system. R.I.P. Uh, Canada making um, interesting and uh, disgusting genre films. Um, what what have we learned today? Uh, going going through this uh, this era of uh, creativity in Canadian cinema. Well, I mean, like, just reiterate my point, like, uh, Panama, the country should just be a filmmaking country now. It's in, like, it can be a tax haven, but you can only get the tax haven status if you invest a good part of the money that you're seeking to shield from the U.S. government in producing genre exploitation films. And, like, I think, like, you know, if you're... If you're a rich person, like at least like at least that money that you're not paying in taxes will go to create something that because because it is just a tax write off and like it doesn't really matter whether it makes money or not. And in fact, it'd be preferable if it didn't make money because then you'd be on the hook for that money to the government. Uh, you, you Like that is how good movies get made. Yeah. And like I think like like that that mix of like just sort of people seeking to avoid taxes and just direct government subsidy is a good model for cultural production. Like for here for instance like in, in, in the UK, uh, like uh, oftentimes you'll see like, a you know, before a movie starts, it'll be like made with funds from the National Lottery Commission. Like in New York, we have a fucking lottery to pay for public schools. Like that's how fucked up America is that we're like in, imposing a secondary system of taxation on like the most poor and vulnerable in our society just so that we can have like, I don't know, heat in public school buildings. It's like in a functioning society, you could have things like the lottery pay for movies. You know, things that are not 
totally essential to the maintenance of civilization, <laughs> but are nonetheless, it's kind of hard to have a good society without producing good movies. So I, I, I think, I think this, I think the, the, the tax system that you're talking about provides a, uh, I think a, a, a model to be copied. Yeah. And I think build, building on what Will is saying as well, uh, there are right now a lot of, uh, sort of, you know, the, the America's billionaires uh, seem to be engaged in, um, you know, moronic spaceflight programs uh, or, you know, multi-decade reputation washing schemes. Uh, I think we could all forgive uh, Bill Gates for a lot more of his uh, monopolism and stuff. And also the world would be a better place because he would try to stop, like, inventing a special kind of math for school kids to do if he would basically just take over for Cinepix and uh, launder his reputation through uh, the creation of uh, genre exploitation films. Uh, I would uh, I would think a lot more of him. Let's get Guillermo del Toro's At the Mountains of Madness off the ground with SpaceX money. Come on, let's go. Let's. Uh, uh, yeah, w- way more useful for humanity. Um, all of and all of the uh, horrible, uh, gruesome, uh, un- almost unthinkable uh, distortions of the human body uh, are just going to be special effects, as opposed to in real life, which is what would happen if you tried to live in space. <laughs> Or all the circumcisions Bill Gates is responsible let's keep, for. Let's, let's talk about the real disgusting keep, body uh, horror. Let's keep shivers, uh, stuff like shivers, scanners, and uh, you know, event horizon. Let's keep that in the realm of film and not reality. Let's uh, yes, uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And like, if you're if you're a billionaire, like, just get involved in making movies because if you make a bad movie, it's like not the end of the world. Instead of like, get, I don't know, getting involved in taking over the education system of the United States and the world. It's like sort of the stakes are just a little bit higher. And I would prefer it if you'd not have a say in uh, how kids are educated or how medical care is dispersed. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, so if uh, all of you that are if the, the Irving family is listening, uh, we all would like you to uh, please make a, a the extended scanners cinematic universe. Thank you. Yes, please. All right. Well, uh, Will, thank you very much for joining us on this uh, on this journey. Always a joy. And thanks for sharing Blackout with me, a film I sur- surely would never have seen were it not for this podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, is, it has been. I, 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 too, would never have seen Blackout. Uh, I'm also very grateful to uh, Dan for coming up with this idea. Uh, so I also could have uh, understood that there is not only one Mitchum in the acting game. Yeah, yeah. No, I, being introduced to the career of Mitchum Failson. Multiple Mitchums. Jim Mitchum. <laughs> <laughs> I'm seeing double here. Four Mitchums. Four Mitchums. <laughs> well, thanks for listening, folks. This has been The Bottleman. Uh, don't forget, if you want more of this uh, goopy, um, transgressive content, you can subscribe to us on Patreon and, uh, and, and get, the, get the true mind blast, the real scan. That's right. Uh, I think we should definitely just like... We should, in addition to watching uh, Corner Gas and Bad CanCon, uh, we should watch more genre exploitation films. Uh, I really enjoyed them. Yeah, I think we should do My Bloody Valentine next. It's fantastic. Yes, we will do My Bloody Valentine next, and we should do it on the Patreon. Will, thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to watch a couple of films and talk about them with us. Uh, I have had a blast. It's all I do. Indeed. <laughs> and it's, it's no work to me. <laughs> and don't forget, we've got a Patreon, seven bucks Canadian a month uh, for a second episode every week, which you can subscribe to, uh, for which I'm sure we will be watching more genre exploitation films in the future, such as possibly Death Weekend. Uh, so uh, with all that being said, uh, thank you very much. And we'll see you in a couple of days. Bye. Au revoir. Au revoir.